Hey, this is Jim Martin with Little Things First. Hey, Jim, this is Tracy. Uh, I'm at home. Where are you? I'm at home at my dining room table. <laughs> We're not together like we normally are. We're usually in the same room. I know, and Jim, it actually is a highlight for me when I get to see you every month or every week or every other day whenever we go. I know, but we're we're following the rules and, you know, practicing social distancing and, um, geez, just the way it is for a little while. Yeah. So anyway, we're going to be talking to some people um, today, Um, actually a person, not people, one person. Uh, his name is Mike Flynn, and um, he came to my attention because he's written some things about the current crisis. I mean, he does work beyond just COVID-19, but this has really brought out, this pandemic has brought out people's um, people's expertise uh, in different ways. So that's okay. kind of how he came to my attention. He wrote a, um, a blog about the transition to online learning Right. During this time of crisis, so I thought maybe he could shed some light on some things he could be doing now and you know in the long term too. So, Mike yeah, Flynn. no, that's so good because um, I know our school. We have just had to do a one eighty and shift, and everything now is, you know, is just all electronic and a little bit of paper for our very youngest ones. But uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from him and what he has to say. So here's yeah, what we have that's to. That's what's on there for everybody's mind right now. So. Yeah. Okay. So Jim, what we have to do then is I'm just putting you on hold while I give Mike a call because I have his number right here. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. All right. We'll be right back. All right. I'll be waiting. All right. We're giving him a call right now. Hello, Mike Flynn speaking. Hey, Mike. This is Tracy. I'm going to put you... Hey, Tracy. How are you doing? I'm so good. Thanks. I'm putting you into our merged call. So hold on just a second. I'm going to grab Jim, okay? Sure. Okay, Jim, we probably should hear you now. Do you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. And Mike's on the call. Hey, Jim. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for joining us today on a Saturday. Oh, no problem. Yeah, you got me out of the pond, so I can take a little break from... Uh, <laughs> Trying to clean that up and see all our Sound frogs and fish that survive the winter. Yeah, Mike, I have a pond Very too. Nice. I could use some help. Yeah, <laughs> I promise to stay six feet away. Yeah, exactly. Very good. <laughs> so, tell us a little bit about yourself, Mike. So, um, yeah, I guess I, I I'm the director of math leadership programs at Mount Holyoke College. Um, basically, I run a professional and graduate program for math teachers and coaches and um, any educators that really want to focus on math education and being a leader in the field. That's, that's kind of my, my main function. But also in that role, I travel around the country and I work with school districts and support them in long-term systemic change in math. So I do professional learning for teachers and coaches and administrators and parents and school board members and, um, and look at making some pretty significant shifts in math education for um, preschool through eighth grade is usually my area of focus, though I do some work in high school. And when I'm not doing math work and in the professional world, I uh, I have five kids, um, and uh, we just do a lot of fun family stuff together, including cleaning out our pond right now. So <laughs> that's our fun Saturday. Yeah. 
That, that's amazing. So when you go back into that math education idea, and I know Jim stumbled across some of your writing about, you know, how we've had to shift our our instruction right now during the, you know, this, this time of the virus, if you will. So give us more about how you've seen or been able to, you know, witness, even maybe with your own kids, that transition. Yeah, it's been interesting. It was, I was actually out in California when things started to get real. I was at a, a math conference and um, we were talking to different educators and they were saying that they were thinking of closing some California schools and um, and we started to recognize that this was going to be um, pretty significant for education and, um, and, and also seeing that those schools that were closing in California, uh, teachers were posting on social media how there were no guidance. There was no guidance for them. They were just told next week um, you're teaching online and people were freaking out because that's not a medium that they've worked in before. And it's, it's a lot to take on. Um, at Mount Holyoke, we actually run a grad program. Um, and our professional learning in ways that blend online and on-campus people together for live learning. And we've spent seven years getting it, like, perfected. And it, and it takes a lot of time and, and energy and effort to do it right. And I saw these teachers just being told, you're doing it. Like, next week, figure it out. And um, and so I threw out, threw out on Twitter uh, just an offer to train people for free and just share what little bit I knew in a short period of time to help them out uh, as far as doing online learning in the um, K-12 world, because the work I've done with adults and grad students. And so it's a little different. So trying to think about how a first grader would work in this space yeah. was uh, fairly new to me. So, um, so basically that began uh, this process where we started a, uh, I guess you'd call it a support community uh, that grew to about 2,500 educators from around the world who were all faced with school closures and moving their instruction online. So uh, we have folks from uh, yeah, preschool teachers through college professors, um, every single subject area uh, as part of this community. And we've had hundreds of people in our live sessions uh, as we did these trainings. And so some of the things that I've seen um, in, is in the early stages of this, uh, people were just scrambling and just um grabbing any resources they could find and just putting anything together so they can send stuff out. And so what was coming home didn't have a lot of coherence. Um, it, it was often just practice and, um, and sort of enrichment work. And for my own kids as a parent, like it was the district said they're not going to do any grading. It's just um, some teachers send things home. Other teachers didn't send anything. And it was a real mix. I'd have like, so one of my middle schoolers had tons of work to do and my other middle schooler had no work to do. And, same with my, uh, my two high schoolers. One had a lot, one had none. And so it was really just kind of, I don't want to say discombobulated a little bit, but understandably so, because districts are making these choices and these decisions really quickly without the support. Yeah. What we're starting to see now that people have had a little time to process is a little bit more of a revision of what initially went out. So um, I can say, again, as a parent, the information we're getting from the schools now feels like they've got a, here's a plan where we're going to um, have a, a fair amount of, of practice work, not a lot of new content coming out. Um, here's what to do when it's a little bit more organized and it makes, uh, makes it a lot easier as a parent to keep track of that. And as I'm doing my training sessions and consulting with school districts, I'm finding that uh, people are now having a more realistic view. I think what was happening in the beginning is that people were just trying to take whatever you're going to do on Monday in your regular class and now throw it online, and that doesn't work. 
Um, so now people started to recognize what's feasible and what's equitable because the other piece of this is um, there's lots of kids who don't have access to internet or maybe there's one device that's being shared by the entire family and mom and dad have to work or dad has to work on the computer. And, and so there's a there's something that's happening where teachers are now needing to modify things so that the work that's being sent home actually is uh, equitable so that you're not just creating a system where those that have access to the technology and those have access those who have access to family members that can support their learning at home get to continue to grow and thrive and those that don't are, are left further behind. And so that's uh, right. that's also what I've, I've been noticing. So what are some little things that you recommend? Because you wrote, um, well, you chatted with uh, AFCD's in-service blog about the transition to an online learning environment. Um, so what are some little things that you recommend that educators be doing right now? So, I mean, the first thing I think is, I think everyone sort of needs to take a philosophical approach to this in terms of how they're viewing this. Um, now, some people call it distance learning. Some people call it online learning. But in actuality, what, what's happening now is what is, is really um, should be considered crisis learning. Like, it's not mm-hmm. the same as, like, distance learning or online learning here. People are really, uh, it, it's just a very different experience. So, um recognizing that and and having schools or or teams think about what's most important right now in this time of a crisis um, to design the instruction based on what those core values are. And and the reason I say that is because I think as schools try to just continue learning and try to to prevent as much slide that happens with kids being home, um, it's creating a lot of pressure for classroom teachers, for, for administrators, for parents. Um, the amount of stress that I'm hearing from everybody is not healthy. And so right now we have a crisis. It's a, there's a health crisis that's, that's making kids feel anxious, making parents feel anxious. Um, everyone's feeling a little on edge right now. Um, and as, as we see more, um, cases and more deaths and things, I think it just, it elevates that. Now, if you can throw into the mix there, now we've got to find time to, to, finish that project and to do that lab and to write that essay and to read that book and, and fit all that within everything else. It can, it can create a level of stress for everybody that is actually counterproductive. So um, keeping that in mind, my advice for people, if you're going to be thinking about being a, a having an effective crisis educational experience is to, to do less and to give yourself and your students permission to do less um, and, and, but to do those little things pretty well. And to find time to connect uh, in ways that you can just support one another and try to create a little bit of normalcy so that the students and the teachers can just feel like a class community occasionally through the week and so that the kids still have a connection to their their teachers and some connection to the work and encourage them uh, to continue to do things like reading and, and, and to do some of the math, but not to try to create and these new lessons and design all this new content. And, uh, and most importantly, I, I tell people not to worry about assessing um, and try to measure kids and worry about cheating and all of these things. When we add all those other layers to this, um, I think when all this is done and we reflect back, I think people are going to really have regrets about some of the ways that they, they push some of these measures in place because it's, it's just not feasible. Uh, it, it's hard to do. Um, the work that I do online, it's hard to do with adult learners. Um, 
when it's all well planned out and designed for this, it's that's that's a challenge. Doing it on the fly is not it's not it's not good. Um, it's it's as best as we can make it in this time. But uh, I think when people are relieved of some of the pressures of um, teaching new content and grading, it can it, it just makes everything less stressful. And then the learning that does happen is more meaningful because uh, there's, there's enough brain research that when people feel anxious, the parts of their brain that um, that the active memory and, and retrieval and all of that actually become deactivated and their the stress parts of the brain are, are super activated and that doesn't help learning. So um, right. if we try to cram too much in, we're actually doing worse for our students than if we, we did nothing. I really appreciate your emphasis on that connection. Uh, because I think that that is a pretty important piece, especially for you know, our younger students. And we've been using the word feedback, right? Because I know when I've seen kids online or even we give up food. And so we have kids coming through in their cars and we're, we have kind of a drive-through food system set up for kids to be able to get food. And when I see their little faces and sometimes they have like they want to talk about the work, right? They want, they want to know, am I doing it right? Is it good? And they, they don't necessarily want the grade, but they also have been doing this work in isolation. And tell me more about that. What would be ways we could give some feedback without a grade or an assessment attached to it? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, I think ultimately that's what assessment really is, right? I mean, Grading is like this, I think is like a holdover that we've had yeah. um, from years past that like, like, I mean, what does it really mean to be a B or C yeah. second grader, right? Yeah. I mean, what, like it's, we try to quantify learning. It's, it's not, it's not really a, a good measure, um, but qu- good quality feedback on, on what's working with their writing or uh, what they need to improve upon in their writing that's very specific makes a lot of sense for students. It makes sense for teachers. That's kind of the, the world we live in. And so I think the ways in which we can do this in an asynchronous way is is, um, is really just through uh, narrative feedback um, that's written for their work. So whatever grade you're, you're uh, teaching, uh, there's ways that you can provide that so that students can can get some good feedback on, on what's, uh, what they're doing and the teachers can feel like they've got some connection to their students. So, um, so this is one way to do that. It's just as, as people hand things in, they can uh, just give uh, narrative feedback. But also, if they decide that they want to use video conferencing, there's ways that, uh, for instance, in Zoom, for instance, you can do um, you can set breakout rooms. So, so you can have the class work on something, and, and teachers can actually pull one student at a time into a breakout room to do a check-in with them. Uh, it's like sort of an office hour or a one-on-one conference, much the same that they would do in the classroom of having them come over to the reading table or the desk uh, to get a one-on-one conference with the teacher. And um, Or the same thing can also happen in small groups. So if teachers want students to be in small groups working on a project using Zoom or one of the other video conferencing platforms, they can also confer with the students, give real-time feedback, and uh, and do these formative assessments that really give the teachers the kind of information that they need so that when we do finally get back to school, if schools are uh, allowed to resume this year, that there's a chance for some continuity uh, to happen uh, throughout this time. Yeah. I think about all of us as learners, we, we want um, we want to be validated in that, am I doing this right? 
you know? So I'm thinking about even just saying, I've got your work. What a great job. I really appreciate how much effort you've put into it. So, so that they know that you've received it and that you've looked at it. And then of course you could maybe give them other kind of constructive feedback if you feel necessary. But as I'm thinking about kids wanting, because they want to make their teacher happy, they want to get that, you know, positive. So, um, I'm just glad to hear you, you know, reference about making those connections with kids who are really isolated themselves, right? Absolutely. Uh, Mike, how do you, how do you think this might impact virtual learning in the future? Do you think it will have a positive impact or a negative impact or no impact? I think, I think a little bit of both. I hope not too, uh, too negative. Uh, I think, uh, because that's a, that's the space I work in. Uh, but so many of our professional engagements are done through video conferencing. It's live interactive learning, and I think we've done a really good job at perfecting that. Uh, but my colleague and I who designed this, we were actually talking about our fear of Zoom exhaustion because uh, if, if everyone for these you know, two months or whatever are trying to uh, do all this stuff in video conferencing. And I hear people, I see people posting things online saying like just how over sitting in zoom meetings they are. And, and yet our grad program would require people to do some of that. And so I, I worry a little bit about people getting um, a little tired of the online learning. And I also think it's, it's not a fair measure. Like, so um, as I said, this isn't online learning that's happening right now. It's not distance right now. It's hybrid learning. It's, it really is crisis learning. So, I, I hope people can separate that what they're experiencing right now that may not be um, positive is not a reflection of what good, high-quality online learning can be. Um, on the other side of this, the positive lens is that um, as people use these technologies, um, what I'm hoping they discover is that it really is um, it's really easy to, to engage in this space and that ultimately what makes engaging learning is the technology. Um, it's the actual pedagogy. It's the, it's the, the instructional strategies and the, the understanding of how kids learn and utilizing that knowledge to create interactive, engaging learning experiences. And that's what makes really good learning, whether it's Zoom or Google Hangout or through Moodle or Canvas, or it doesn't matter the technology or the platform. Good online learning, it, it stems from good learning. And that's, and, and if teachers remember that, um, as long as, as we go forward in this digital age and start looking at more online learning options, um, I just want to, I hope people really design it with that idea of, of just creating good learning experiences. And then regardless of whatever the, the platform is, and I, and that's the big piece of advice I've been giving people as I train them is the, is I ask everyone to think of their non-negotiables. So if you're a classroom teacher, what are the things that are really important for you and for your students for their own learning? And it could be like interactivity. It could be conversation. It can be uh, supports, visual models, whatever, whatever they say, these are the things that are, I'm not going to compromise on. I think anyone who does work in the online learning world needs to make those lists, make a list of their non-negotiables and then design online learning without compromising any one of those. Because I think too often People look at what technology is available, and then they bend their instruction. They contort their instruction to fit that technology, and that's the wrong way to approach it. What you need to do is list your non-negotiables, design those learning experiences, and then find the technology that lets you do those things that you want to do. And when people do that, you actually create 
really robust, engaging online learning experiences. So I hope when all this is done, people still uh, appreciate the medium and, and also appreciate those who are doing it well and, and recognizing that we need to continue to support this work and, and evolve it as we move forward. I love that. Nice. I, I have another question. Sorry, Jim, I got to jump in. No, that's no problem. So this is a little bit away from the online focus because we're all at home. But in our school, we uh, we have been just tipping our dipping our toe into number talks. And I've only been at this building for a couple of years. They really, really, really want to spend a lot of time on computation. Just So now I'm just tapping into the math guy inside of you, okay? And yeah. so I, I was like, oh, I, I had other things that I thought were really crucial for, for us in the beginning, but they wanted to kind of go down that road of spending a lot of time and effort on like memorizing facts. And, and I, I, I come from a place where I don't feel like that has been our best place to put those, um, resources. I, in fact, so I'd love it if you just can like throw me off the cliff if I'm way off. So many people, I think, are not really even memorizing math facts anymore, but I'm noticing our kids, they maybe are memorizing some facts and maybe not even all of them, but they don't have the number sense to even know that, you know, seven times three is not 94, right? Where somehow yeah. they've gotten it in their head and and I'm I'm wanting you to help talk me through as an educational leader, how do I, how do I build that number sense? And where, what's that role of of that computation or memorizing? Yeah. So, uh, so what I think happens, and and the the one thing that we're really needing to avoid is memorizing. So, memorizing. There's a difference between memorizing and knowing from memory. Um, uh-huh. Memorizing is just it's just recall um, without any strategic connections or meaning behind it. Uh, knowing from memory, which looks a lot like memorization, but it's not It's not really memorization. Knowing something from memory means that you can construct that and conjure it very quickly, but it's rooted in strategy. So I know that 8 plus 7 is 15, not because I've seen 8 plus 7 mm-hmm. next to each other so much flashed at me that I just now have an automatic response. Like, every time I see those two numbers, mm-hmm. I say 15 because I'm used to seeing that. But that I actually recognize that seven plus seven is fourteen, and one more is fifteen, or yeah. eight plus eight is sixteen, one less. Like that strategic thinking, I think, is um, often what's missed. So what ends up happening is that young kids who are developing number sense, you develop number sense through experiences with quantity, through counting, uh, through looking at collections of things, and and uh, and grouping, and, and and it's rooted in concrete physical objects or. Yeah. Uh, visual representation. Yeah. And that's what's supposed to be happening in the younger grades. But in an effort to get kids faster, yeah. we move them to the abstract really quickly. And that's where the memorization comes in. So what needs to happen if kids, if you really want students to be strategic and have really good strategies and, ha- and, and have uh, fluency with their, with their computation, then you need them to have uh, good, strong, concrete and visual models connected to abstract thinking and give kids lots of experiences with with all three of those mediums. And once you have strategies in place, so if I'm teaching second graders and we're, we've worked on our, our doubles facts, and now uh, we're going to use our doubles facts to look at our doubles plus one yeah, facts. Yeah. So now we're looking at A plus five. Now kids, 
once they understand that strategy, they can then go ahead and practice with flashcards because what they're doing is uh, rehearsing something that's strategic and, and rooted in meaning versus just blank memorization. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. So I've been wanting to, and, and I felt like this was blasphemy because what the, what I've grown up with is you just learn those facts, right? But I would much rather have a kid be able to make a multiplication table than have it all memorized so that they are able to look at those patterns, look at those count bys, being able to have an accurate sense. Um, so th just thank you for digging a little deeper on there. Yeah. I mean, the, the visual piece is huge. I mean, I look at like that concrete representational abstract progression. I think sometimes people see that as, um, I, I look at it as like three islands. So you have concrete on the left side, um, representational in the middle and abstract on the right side. And people have often looked at math as our job is to push kids off of those early islands and get them all into that abstract island. That's where like the real math lives. And, and kids who are already there are celebrated as the, the high achievers and the, where they call them high flyers and all those names yeah. and, like, that yeah. I can't stand. And then on the concrete island, your concrete thinkers um, get labeled like the low kids, the struggling learners. Yeah. And so that's how math has always been positioned. And I actually want to upend that whole view. And I instead, I, I still see those three islands. And I see our jobs as math teachers is to be bridge builders because there are plenty of kids who live on abstract island. They teach numbers really quickly. They have no idea why it works, though. Yeah. So they might be able to give you a really fast answer, but with nothing behind it, just meaning or understanding behind it. A kid like that would benefit from being able to create and connect their abstract way um, of thinking to a visual model um, to deepen and enrich that thinking. The same is that our concrete thinkers need time in that space to be able to develop that number set um, and make those connections to the abstract way of thinking. And so it's not necessarily like a linear progression that you start at concrete, go to representation of the abstract. Um, our jobs as teachers is to really continually spend time building bridges between those islands so that there might be a really rich way that an eighth grader thought about um, a systems of equations and the, um, and to look at um, what that might look like contextually or, or to create a visual model to, to demonstrate why that system works the way it does is, is incredibly powerful. So uh, when we think of the, the CRA progression, it doesn't just exist in elementary school. This is, we can see this across the grades. We use the same model with our, um, our adult learners and the power that, that we get from having people think about the math in meaningful ways connected to visual representations and context. It's, it's incredible to see the, the meaning that is, is um, mm -hmm. achieved once people get a chance to do that. Yeah. Um, and I think we just get away from that. So the reason why we have kids that are counting on their fingers in, in seventh grade is that they've been rushed away from yeah. visual tools and right into abstract in the name of being faster but instead what we created is uh just more inefficient kids yeah it's kind of yes counterproductive yeah thank you that makes Those so much great sense yeah i'm glad you went into that tracy because um mike you have a book called beyond answers exploring math ma mathematical practices with young children and um you know do you have anything else that you want to add as far as you know little things that teachers of uh math with young children should be paying attention to i think that's a really great rec recommendation to spend a little bit more time in those uh, conceptual areas, uh, yeah. representational areas. Um, any, any other pieces of advice that we can share? 
Yeah, I mean the the reason the book's called Beyond Answers is that they that I've found like when I grew up that math was all about answer getting, and in some classes today it still is all about answer getting versus uh, a process of thinking and engaging in mathematical reasoning. Um, the process is way more interesting and more meaningful than the product product of just getting uh, the right answer. And so that book is designed to really look at how do how do we teachers support the process of engaging in mathematics with our students? And um, those of us in the younger grades, I used to teach second grade before I went to higher education, but um, in the younger grades, we shape kids' mindset about what it means to do mathematics. Like we, their, their experiences in kindergarten, first and second grade shape how they see what math class is. And we have a very important job to um, really establish what it means to do an engagement in mathematics with students. And when we do that well, um, kids start to see that math is a really interesting process and that it's not a high-stress, high-stakes subject area where you either get it or you don't get it. And it's all about speed and it's all about right answers. And these three kids are really good at math because they're really fast with their flashcards and you're not good at math because <laughs> you take a little longer to think about yeah. it. Like we want to, So really engaging in the practices is, is uh, ultimately what I, I I think I'd like to see more teachers do across all grade levels. And part of it, we have to start by just understanding the math practices for ourselves, because most adults who teach uh, uh, kids, they haven't actually learned these standards for themselves. They, yeah. they We grew up in answer getting. And uh, one of the things that I like to compare sometimes is uh, there's sort of thing, when we think about literacy instruction, there are things that um, that are really important for ELA teachers when we like for instance when we're thinking about reading um, that are really important. We want to make sure that kids can decode text accurately. We want to make sure that they can read fluently, and we also want to make sure that they understand what they read. Those three things have to happen together. And we've all had readers, those of us who've taught reading before. We have some kids who are really good word callers. They they have good sight mm-hmm. memory. They can they can look at words and, and decode really well. And so they could read a book with, with 100% accuracy. They could read it fluently with like inflection and everything. And it just sounds like, you know, you don't want them to narrate a movie. They're so good at that. But when you ask them questions about the book, they can't answer it. And so if I have a student who, like in second grade who is reading a level N and she can read it quickly and accurately, but she can't tell me anything about the book and she can't even relate like some of the key ideas. I, I wouldn't in good conscience say like, yeah, she's definitely reading at that level. Mm-hmm. As her teacher, I would bring her level down so that the comprehension and the accuracy and the fluency were all operating the same, like the same uh, level that I want them to yeah. be at. Um, so we, we never, like, you would never have a teacher say, you know what, it's such, it's such a good thing that she can read words really fast. And don't worry if you don't understand the book, you don't need to worry about that. But that's exactly what we do in math, right? We say, just get answers really fast. It doesn't matter if you really understand it. I mean, I was taught yours is not to reason why, just invert and multiply. I mean, yeah. the, the, the trick <laughs> that providing fractions actually told me, don't even wonder why. Just do this and get the right answer. Right. And so right. it's no wonder that we have so many adults in this world who hate math. Because mm-hmm. if we taught reading the way we teach math, mm-hmm. um, we'd have a whole bunch of adults who say, I don't... I." I could say words really fast, but I never really liked reading because I never understood it. Um, mm-hmm. Imagine if we actually built in the comprehension of mathematics, if we engaged in the yeah. process of doing mathematics, um, we'd have a, a whole new generation of people who actually enjoyed math. Yeah, love it. Yes. 
So you have a, a virtual math professional learning community. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how people can get involved in that? Oh, sure. Yeah, we, we run a couple of different ones. So our, our okay. the one that's really big right now, we have about uh, three or 4,000 people, and I, I haven't checked the numbers in a while. The uh, um, It just keeps updating, but it's we have a math coaching uh, professional learning network that is connecting math coaches from around the world. And uh, what they do is uh, once a month, they'll get together and, and discuss problems of practice. Um, different members of the community will uh, sign up to facilitate a session. And so we've got this nice distributed leadership model. Um, two of my colleagues, Marta Garcia and Polly Wagner, uh, both who are really amazing uh, leaders in the math education field, they run it for us. They're two of my faculty members for our grad program, but they, they sort of oversee it and, uh, and keep that going. And so that's been... Uh, through Zoom, and it's, it um, allows people to really collaborate and connect uh, online in meaningful ways. We, we've also created a professional learning network for principals called the Microburst Series. So we were looking at like the NCTM uh, burst sessions that happen in um, when you go to an NCTM conference. They're like 30 minutes long, so it's nice and short if you want to go to a short burst session. So we called this the Microburst, and we made them 15 minutes long because we know how busy principals and superintendents are, but we also know it's really important for them to develop a good lens of how to recognize good math teaching. So we started running that. So there's short um, live sessions through Zoom that are designed to hit on one small area at a time. And these bite-sized chunks, uh, again, we have thousands of administrators who are part of this. And we're launching our pre-K to five uh, PLC next fall. Uh, So that is designed for elementary teachers and preschool teachers to collaborate and talk about um, challenges in math education or what's next in math education, whatever is really interesting to the teachers. So all of these, um, we have a website called mathleadership.org, and when people go there, uh, there's one of the menus is called professional learning, and if you select that, you'll see professional learning networks, and all of the networks are on there, including the um, online teacher support group that we just created uh, to support people making the transition to teaching online. So all of those are available. And what's nice with them is when people join the community, we record the sessions that we do live because lots of people, we have thousands of people, but they don't all show up live. So we'll record the video and then we just post the video and all the resources um, all free for everyone. I mean, that's one of the things that we really try to do with our uh, professional learning networks is make them free, easily accessible, and, and um, collaborative so that, um, as my colleague and friend Grant Fletcher always said, all of us are smarter than one of us. So right. we pool, pool together thousands of educators and coaches and uh, administrators, the amount of resources that we gather and, um, and share just become um, really useful for lots of people. So we just want to provide easy access for all that work for everyone. Yeah. And then let me just clarify. So that's mathleadership.org. Yep. Okay. And a final question we ask, because we're really focusing on the little things, what, if you were to be able to enter into a time machine, let's say, and you could go back and talk to your younger self when you were early on in education, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, good question. Um, I would say invest in this company called Google and Apple <laughs> and uh, Zoom. Uh, and look at exponential be, growth. Uh, 
Um, no, but all, all seriousness, I would say, um, I think if I, if it was, if I went to like early Mike, when Mike was first teaching, um, my advice to, to early Mike would be to, to get into professional learning in math sooner. So I actually got into it later in the game. Um, I was a literacy person at first and, uh, um, I spent a good number of years sort of teaching math really poorly um, when I first began. I just I didn't appreciate math. I didn't really like the subject. It was my least favorite subject to teach. And um, once I discovered it, uh, probably seven or eight years after teaching, um, once I got down that path, it it awoke in me just this passion. So, um, and I feel like I could have made a bigger difference for a lot of kids had I received those experiences earlier. Um, it really, I think the sooner we can get teachers, um, all teachers to appreciate math the way I was able to appreciate it as an adult, um, can be really transformative. And, um, I wish I can go back to all those different grades that I taught before I finally made the shift to teach math better and apologize personally to each of those kids because <laughs> I, I taught math when I first started the way I was taught, which is just lecture based, show the kids how to do it. And these are poor little second graders that are, um, in there, but I didn't know better. And that's kind of the problem yeah. with the system that um, when you're an elementary teacher, you're a generalist. So your training is you get a little bit of training in a lot of different subjects. Mm -hmm. And unless you, as a, as a professional, unless you actually take the time to do deep learning for yourself, then you're going to, you'll continue to sort of have a mediocre approach until you, you start to perfect a particular area. So I avoided math for so many years and I, I wish I, I, go right into it right from the beginning. Yeah. Excellent. Nice. Well, thank you so much for taking time to, to meet with us and, uh, you know, take time away from that. Uh, sounds like kind of a pond adventure that you've got going on at your spot there. So it, it is. So hopefully the kids continue <laughs> without me and it's going to when I get outside and ready for the frog to that. So, uh, <laughs> all right. Very good. Thanks. Thank you so much. Have a great Take day. Care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.